This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The Reconstruction era, that period after the Civil War, was intended to usher in a genuine democracy in America that fully respected the rights of Black folks. But what's the true story of Reconstruction? How did it spark so much hope and progress, but still ultimately fail? And how do those failings still haunt us today? People who want to uphold a certain status quo, they know that this honest reckoning with history threatens that entire edifice. To reconstruct the nation, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. One of the best ways to understand this contentious moment in America is to look at the past. Reconstruction was the period after the Civil War when the country's leaders aimed to knit the war-torn areas of the South back together and reintegrate them into the nation. An essential part of that mission was allowing African Americans to live fully in their newly recognized freedom and helping whites start treating Black people as fellow citizens instead of property. And, you know, for a while, it almost worked. Black folks were building schools and businesses, voting, and even getting elected to public office. But then, Reconstruction crashed and burned. More to the point, Southern whites refused to respect the new order, and national leaders refused to challenge them. Sounds familiar? The hard-won freedoms of the Civil War were stripped back so far that many Black people lived one small step above their status as formerly enslaved. And the old racial hierarchy was enforced by willfully misinterpreting some laws, ignoring others, and organized brutal violence. That cycle of progress and violent backlash is familiar for former and informal students of Black history. This week, The Atlantic magazine is devoted to Reconstruction and its lessons for today. The issue is entitled, To Reconstruct the Nation. And the force behind it is Van Newkirk II. He's a senior editor for The Atlantic who writes frequently about race and history and has hosted their podcasts, Floodlines and Holy Week. Van Newkirk II, welcome back to A Word. Thank you for having me. There's a really powerful quote from you in the introduction to this issue. And, and this is the quote. If the last seven years in this country have proven anything, it is to show just how unfinished and fragile the project of reconstruction really is. Tell us a little bit about what you meant by that and why do you think now was the right time to examine that concept? We are a magazine dedicated to thinking about the present. And I think, especially in the past decade of American life, we've seen this thing we call democracy really proven to be something that's based on a lot of informal understandings, a lot of the willingness of political actors to obey unwritten laws or unwritten rules of institutions and norms. 
we've seen that when people decide to ignore or challenge those norms and unspoken rules, that a lot of democracy, a lot of civil society are proven to be illusions. So obviously, a lot of these things that we're talking about as far as democracy goes, they were built during Reconstruction. The amendments that are at the core of most Supreme Court decisions right now were the Reconstruction Amendments, particularly the 14th Amendment. And decisions from the court on abortion, on affirmative action, on voting rights, and soon probably on climate change were all based on their interpretation of this 14th Amendment. You could say that pretty much as far as all of our political battles go today, we are still fighting the, the war over the 14th Amendment in particular. So I thought it was important to really dig into not just the sort of standard constitutional history of Reconstruction, but look at the cultural revolution that was taking place, to think about what was going on as far as civics, as far as building families, as far as economics, especially the Black folks who were just creating freedom for the first time. And I thought that that would give us some insight as to how these, still these battles that are very much live are taking shape and how they might end up. I know that the way Reconstruction is taught in schools varies immensely. What do you think are some of the most persistent misunderstandings or gaps in knowledge that the average American has about Reconstruction? To start, for people who don't know, and Reconstruction was the period after the Civil War, estimates vary on the exact time range from usually the mid-60s to its formal end in 1877. And this was a time when the United States had to not just rebuild itself after the Civil War, but figure out how they were going to slot these Black folks, these millions of Black people who were newly free into society. And that was something that when I was a kid in North Carolina, if it was mentioned in textbooks at all, it was marginal. And also, we still had textbooks that said uh, roughly that Reconstruction was a mistake. We just exited that era when the dominant mode of understanding about Reconstruction was that this project of folding these Black people into the country, of giving them civil and legal rights, was actually the South's biggest mistake. So that is what, if you were a Carolinian uh, in the generation just before me, that's likely what you would have learned in school. That is still to this day, the most famous film about Reconstruction is Birth of a Nation, which portrays the Klan as heroes redeeming the South from the evils of Negro rule. I've seen new textbooks about Reconstruction, and I've seen these new exhibits. They are fascinating and amazing. And you always have to appreciate that this did not exist when I was a child. There's a truly a major shift in the historiography of America. This is such a wide ranging issue. Talk a bit about 
the scope when you were putting this issue together? How did you envision this? Did you want people to take this and say, hey, this is going to be like a curriculum? Is this going to be a discussion thing for the next 10 years? Do we want everybody to be sitting around the table and reading this at Thanksgiving and Kwanzaa? What were you thinking about when you were thinking of the scope of the issue? I think the last two examples you gave are really where we want to be. And, and you see this from the secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, from his piece. We want this to be something that is educational and something that can challenge this phenomenon of the erasure of Black history in our educational spaces, in our libraries, by state and county governments, especially in the South. Most of the histories, even the really good histories or pop histories that you see about Reconstruction focus on really two things, right? They focus on these constitutional pieces. They focus on the ways that our legal system was changed from the top to the bottom by Reconstruction, which is a very important thing. And they focus on how Reconstruction ended, on redemption, on the establishment of white supremacy governments in the South. The most important thing for me is to understand what it meant for Black Americans to, again, make their freedom. It wasn't something that was just handed to them on a platter. And it's like, you are free now. Mm -hmm. Emancipation was a, as Du Bois says, emancipation was a process. Reconstruction is a word that refers to the rebuilding of the country, yes, but we were also talking about building a people and their choices, what they wanted. And so it was important for us to take this from the angles of culture, to take it from the angles of what Black folks inherited in the generation after Reconstruction and how they kept the dream and the flame alive. It was important for us to really think about what was going on in the minds of some of the politicians who went over to help the cause of Reconstruction when they had been Confederates before. This was the defining movement in this country of this age, I believe. And you have to do more than just talk about the law when you want to understand it. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on Reconstruction with journalist Van Newkirk. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about reconstruction with Van Newkirk of The Atlantic. Before we turn to the work of your fellow writers, which you've mentioned, I want to dive into the piece that you wrote yourself for the issue. Tell us about the years of Jubilee. Ah, this is a story that's been dear to me for a while. It's about the Fisk Jubilee singers. So they are widely known now for saving and shepherding the Negro spiritual as a cultural form. And 
I've always been told that story. My, my father, full disclosure, he's a former president of Fisk University. And so the story of the Jubilee Singers is so important to that university. Every student goes there, hears it. Um, and I've heard it in various arenas. And most of it's centered on the spiritual as an art form, right? Mm-hmm. This was a piece of culture that was preserved. And this intrepid group of singers, many of them who were born enslaved, just years after emancipation in college, decide to go and take a tour of the country and start. They started out on that tour trying to sing and show that they could sing the European standards in the complex European way that was equal to and likely better than their white peers. By the end of that tour, they had become famous for singing spirituals, for singing the songs that their parents sang out in the fields, songs that were considered sacred, songs that they did not want to perform in public because they were either supposed to be shameful or supposed to be secret. And they chose to use this form of expression. They raised $100,000 for Fisk University to save it. And I would say in saving Fisk, they also helped save the entire edifice of HBCUs in the country. It's an amazing story. Just it feels like it belongs in these mythology books, mm-hmm. with like Jason and the Argonauts. This is a story of these people. They didn't have blankets. They didn't have shawls to put on their shoulders. The lead uh, composer and pianist Ella Shepard, she didn't have shoes, real shoes, for part of this journey north. And so it's one of those things that, you know, if Hollywood knew about this for real, they would be all over making a bad movie about it, right? I think at the level above that, this amazing story was also the fact that these singers, as extraordinary as their story was, their drive to reshape their circumstances using uh, things from their own culture and history that white folks considered to be uh, counterfeit or not worthy. That was not exceptional among black folks. I argue that this was the defining cultural impetus of Reconstruction, was this drive among black folks to make America what they wanted it to be. So you had these singers, you had other singers who were engaged in this project, and I think they had the same spirit as people who were building their own black towns, as people who were taking over plantations and rejecting the calls for them to go back out and work in the fields and making some of the very first extant communist experiments in America. You had these people who were doing all these new and different things that owed nothing to the society as white people built it. That's such a, you know, just powerful example of the real promise of Reconstruction. So the Atlantic has been around so long (laughs) that you literally have had writing from abolitionist Frederick Douglass, right? Like he's literally written the Atlantic. So you have a very long history, which gives you sort of a unique perspective in putting this issue together because you don't just have to look throughout the country. You can look at the Atlantic's own coverage and see how it has evolved in conversations about Reconstruction. What are some things that you think in the past that the Atlantic has gotten right 
and some of the things it's gotten wrong in covering Reconstruction over the last century. The Atlantic has always prided itself on, we were founded as an abolitionist magazine. That was the explicit political stance. And you can see the outgrowth of that abolitionist stance in our writings during Reconstruction. So we did publish uh, Frederick Douglass's Call for Reconstruction, which is republished and annotated by uh, David Blight, is, uh, the Douglass historian, in this issue. We published other calls for a forceful and radical reconstruction of the country that were, in the main, pretty much very pro-Black, especially compared to other publications of the time. However, when you look at where our coverage was just 25 years after Reconstruction, in the early 1900s, we've done a little bit of a 180. The Atlantic commissioned an eight-month-long survey on the legacy of Reconstruction. And we included such luminary voices as Woodrow Wilson, who was then a historian, who is infamous for being sympathetic to the Klan and also praising the birth of a nation Mm -hmm. and being one of its boosters out on tour. We also featured the historian William Dunning, who created what we call the Dunning School, which was the dominant form of history about Reconstruction in the South, again, until probably my childhood, that said that Reconstruction was a mistake because Black people and white people could not live in harmony likely because of the inferiority of Black people, so he says. And that slavery, he says in the piece that he wrote for The Atlantic, even though it had been brutal, it had been a a, a necessary modus vivandi for creating a harmonious South. So we ran a lot of stories like that, and even the sort of editorial framing of this as a debate said that it took for granted the idea that the grant of voting rights to African-Americans was a mistake. So we did have some opposing voices that spoke for up for the necessity of Reconstruction. But in the main, the editorial stance of The Atlantic in, in 1901 was that Reconstruction, the project of giving civil and voting rights to Black Americans was deeply flawed. And... I think the one real voice that we had, who also was the one voice of a black person in the issue, the one black voice that we featured was that of a very young W.E.B. Du Bois. And he wrote a piece about the Freedmen's Bureau that talked about how giving black people the vote was the only way to protect them and was the only even possibly close to adequate beginning of a reparation for slavery. And Du Bois, again, he was young. He had just graduated. He was not well known by the Northern white literati yet. This was one of his entries into that world. And that was the spicy take of the day, I'll say. (laughs) And so I think in the main, we're up and down. But I am I'm glad that we published Du Bois. And that essay actually became one of the cornerstones of his seminal work, The Souls of Black Folk. Another piece I'd like to talk about is how John F. Kennedy fell for the lost cause. I, first off, I absolutely love this. I <laughs> loved this one. 
basically the, the, the essay, it covers how Kennedy's book profiles encourage whitewash history for the Confederacy, right? What's interesting to me about this is that it, it, there's so many levels. One, Kennedy is still seen as a hero, certainly by black greatest generation people. A lot of black boomers still view him very positively. And it reminds me a lot of how a lot of black people today see white folks as allies who haven't been, who have done symbolic allyship when it comes to the real meat and potatoes. They're not great at it. Just talk a little bit about this particular essay and and what it does. I don't think it's a takedown of Kennedy. I just think it's an honest assessment of Kennedy. Well, this is one of my favorite stories in this issue as well. And it's from uh, Jordan Virtue. And she wrote about, uh, again, one of uh, Kennedy's uh, most famous works was Profiles and Courage, this uh, book in which he uh, wrote about these famous figures in history. It was very much a political book, right? Mm-hmm. It was one of the pioneers of the form of the presidential memoir. And he sought to find these figures who he thought would prefigure or portend his own political career. So in that book, he chose to write about the Democrats in Mississippi during Reconstruction. Uh, And he chose to profile this man named Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. Just an amazing name. And this man in Mississippi during Reconstruction was the Democratic candidate. And back in Reconstruction, the Democrats were the party of white supremacy. And he challenged the governing of Adelbert Ames, who was another white man who was a Republican and who was sympathetic to black civil rights. He was part of this revolution of of the, the first generation of black voters in Mississippi. So in John F. Kennedy's book, He portrays Adelbert Ames, the man who was pro-Black civil rights on Reconstruction, as a corrupt and awful politician who was righteously challenged by Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar II. And Jordan tells a story of how Adelbert Ames, how his granddaughter, launched this real crusade to try to get Kennedy to revise his book. Mm -hmm. And she did it through her grandson, George Plimpton, who was obviously a very close confidant of John F. Kennedy. And she was simply, she could not be defeated. She petitioned him. She wrote Kennedy letters. She wanted to clear her grandfather's name. And Kennedy, over his lifetime, he was, she, you could tell that her repeated admonishments of him, her letters just were, they were getting on his damn nerves. Mm-hmm. He was tired of her. He was telling George Plimpton, please get your grandma off my back. This cannot continue. But I think she was actually, I don't think she was too far from breaking through. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that he was still responding, the fact that the civil rights movement was in full swing. The fact that it was simply not, it was becoming less and less tenable for a Democratic president to be seen as someone who was sympathetic to this lost cause narrative of the South. I think she was on her way to a breakthrough. You saw in that same five-year span, Du Bois' Black Reconstruction starts to become more popular. These 
revisions of the Dunning Lost Cause history become more popular. But unfortunately, Kennedy is assassinated before he works on a revision of that book. So the book has never been revised and still stands with its portrayal of Lamar II uh, as a hero. So she would not be deterred and decided to make her own book, made her own book about a grandfather. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. Something else that's in this issue, this issue has an original play. It has an original mm-hmm. groundbreaking play by Pulitzer Prize winning writer Anna DeVere Smith. It's The Ghost of Slavery. The idea of a magazine publishing a play is amazing to me just as a concept. Tell me, how did you get this? <laughs> how did you get agreement for this? What was the the process like? And, and tell me a little bit about the play. So Anna has been working with us for a few years since we started this project on Black History and Memory a couple of years ago called Inheritance. Mm-hmm. And Anna started writing for us then, and we've kept in touch. We've always been reaching out. I want to work with Anna any time that I can. And she said, told us that something was coming. So one day, out of the blue, Scott Stossel, another editor at the magazine, gets she just inboxes him a draft of the entire play. Mm. 100,000 words or so just comes in in his inbox. And it's okay. Now we got it. We've got it. We are going to publish this play from Anna DeVere Smith. And we have to figure out how. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is our, the first play that The Atlantic has published in a century or so. And our, we've got, I think, two smaller things we published a little bit before then. But nothing on this level of scope and ambition, full two-act play. And obviously none of the editors here have edited plays before. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a real collaborative effort between us and with Anna trying to figure out, number one, she does a lot of this documentary style Mm -hmm. uh, playwriting where it's, she takes verbatim things from interviews, from the historical record, and they become the source for much of uh, the spoken word on stage. Uh, That that is a backbone of this play, but she also created uh, characters who were invented for this play, who are fictional, whose dialogue is original. And she took them and used them as a device for understanding the long tail of the history of slavery in Maryland. But we had to figure out how to make that device sing, how to make it work on the page, and also how to explain to people who won't be seeing this in a theater setting how Anna's work usually works, how this type of play works and functions. We came up with the system of footnoting where we actually sourced all of the documentary pieces of this. And so it lives, I believe, not just as a wonderful drama, but also in a literary form that people who are not super read in in drama can understand and appreciate. To talk about the play itself, it is called This Ghost of Slavery. And in this play, she's got this group of people in the present in Baltimore who are trying essentially to understand the state of racial affairs, of Black affairs in the city and in the state. And through these flashbacks, they come to understand that it's really the unresolved legacy of slavery, especially in Maryland, which was a border state 
and never had the sort of final definitive end of slavery that, say, states in the true South did. So she traces using figures, using speeches from Douglas, using speeches from Congress. You actually see a little bit of Adelbert Ames, who was slandered in the profiles of (laughs) courage show up. Really, this cast of historical figures, in their own words, provide the context for the Baltimore of the present. It's a wonderful play. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about re-examining Reconstruction with writer Van Newkirk. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with The Atlantic's Van Newkirk about the magazine's new issue about the Reconstruction era. I usually like to avoid conversations about critical race theory because in in a way, I think it it platforms a, a bad faith racist argument. But you have an essay in this issue, Why is America Afraid of Black History? And it's written by historian Lonnie Bunch. Uh, He leads the Smithsonian Institute and was one of the founding directors of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Just talk a little bit about this idea of America being afraid of black history. And really, it's white America being afraid of black history. I mean, we do have some black people who are afraid of it. I'd say you'd have more black people who are ignorant of black history than afraid of it. But talk a little bit about this essay and our sort of current political and educational environment. So it's important, if you don't know who Lonnie Bunch is, obviously he's he's a secretary of the Smithsonian now, but he is one of the deans of black history in this country. He was the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. He's got a real deep roots in the documentary history of black Americans in this country. And part of his story that he wrote was about this archive that he is just so proud to shepherd there at the Smithsonian. It's the Freedmen's Bureau Papers. And this is, for my money, the richest trove of primary and secondary pieces of information about Black folks, really, in the country, period. And it because it came from the Freedmen's Bureau during Reconstruction, it's one of the is probably the first comprehensive archive of Black life in America. They have all these records. A lot of them are not fully transcribed and digitized, and they have an ongoing community project to do that. And actually, he, in going and digging through the Freedmen's Bureau archive, found his own ancestor, which is just an amazing story. And so that is a jumping off point for him to discuss and make the case for this kind of rigorous, of simply facts on the table, Black history that makes conclusions about the present unavoidable and inevitable. If you understand through this archive that Black folks actually did build these cities, these plantations, these monuments, using all their power to get jobs, to make a free life for themselves, and still were abandoned, that means that you simply cannot broker, simply cannot accept the lost cause mythology or the Dunning School, which means that you're going to have to move to a version of history that's closer to the one that is espoused by critical race theorists, actual critical race theorists. Mm -hmm. 
And where he lands this story is obviously right now there is a, uh, a pretty widespread movement, especially in the South, to marginalize standard Black history. Again, not critical race theory, as you say. Standard Black history. Easy stuff. And the reason why that movement persists and is so powerful now is because Republicans, frankly, are the people who understand the power of that history the best. And people who want to uphold a certain status quo, who want to continue to marginalize Black political strength and want the country to remain in stasis, they know that this honest reckoning with history threatens that entire edifice. So Lonnie Butch wrote about that. And I think especially given his authority as the secretary of the Smithsonian, it's a really important piece. We're not talking about getting people who are interpreting these things, who are making arguments based on them. We're talking about what's in a documentary record. Right. What are the facts? And those facts are powerful. When you look at something like Reconstruction, what are some of the lessons that we can take from how America handled Reconstruction to look at some of the situations facing the world today? What can we take from how we handled that, how we viewed it, how we dealt with it, and how we might take what we did well and not well abroad when it comes to international policy or even just in some of our public discourse about what's happening around the world? You look at Reconstruction and you're talking about a time that follows an era where for a century and a half, two centuries, the institution of slavery was considered to be impossible to overthrow. You had a system where all these millions of people lived under in extremely difficult circumstances. And the humanitarian cost of that system, even for people who thought they were humans, were often justified by reasons of safety, security, and were considered to be the moral order. Anybody who questioned that moral order, they were either ostracized or they were told that they didn't know what they were talking about. They did not have enough information to understand the moral complexity of this system. Now, everybody knows they were against it. Reconstruction, everybody knows it was good. You look at what Reconstruction really was, though, and it was a contested time in which people who knew what was right did what was right. They lost, ultimately, I believe, that fight, but they made a mark. And I think if you look out in the world today, yeah, obviously, you got similar situations. You got a lot of people. If you look at Gaza, you have a situation right now where we're being told that in order to save children, we must bomb children. And that is essentially what the argument boils down to. Is that the best we can do as a world? I think if you think about the spirit of Reconstruction, which is, again, rebuilding. It is making, it is making a world. We really have to think about what kind of world we want to make. That's the, the ultimate, I think, takeaway of Reconstruction is we have the power to make the kind of world we want to make. And 
If you're telling me what you want is a world where, again, you got to send thousands, millions of tons of ordinance on children living in hospitals and densely populated neighborhoods in order to secure something. Is that the world you want to live in? Van Newkirk II is a senior editor of The Atlantic. Its new issue, To Reconstruct the Nation, is out now. Van, as always, it is humbling. It is amazing. Thanks so much for coming on a word. Thank you. That's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money